you for your word. And Lord, as we gather together now around your word, I pray that this would be a word of salvation and a word of deliverance for many in ways maybe that we can't even imagine and we might not even see in these moments, but that will ripple out into eternity for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, last week we saw that the prophet Jonah was called by God to go to the city of Nineveh and to preach to the pagans who were there. And Jonah wasn't too pleased with his assignment, so he literally fled in the opposite direction. God told Jonah to go in one direction to Nineveh. Jonah fled in the direct opposite direction, heading to Tarshish. And while on his way to Tarshish, Jonah finds himself in the midst of a storm. He is thrown overboard, overboard from the ship that he was on. And as we read in verse 17, Jonah is swallowed whole by a fish. Now, last week I mentioned that this account, which really Jonah is most well known for, uh, him being swallowed by a fish and then vomited up later, uh, I mentioned that this account has been the cause for much discussion and debate. It has raised all kinds of questions, like was this an historical event, or was this intended to be taken as a parable or an allegory? Was something like this even scientifically possible, physically possible, for a whale to swallow a man like this? And if so, could a man survive in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights? With that in mind, I want us to take a closer look at chapter 1, verse 17. Now you see it there. It reads, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So we might begin by asking the question, was this even naturally possible? Was it possible for a fish to swallow a man whole? Most assume that the type of fish here that's being referred to is a whale. We don't know that. It says there in the text that it was a great fish. It doesn't mention the specific type of fish, but most assume it was some type of whale. And years ago, as some read this account, they would argue that a whale could never swallow a man because the throat of a whale is too small. The argument was that whales have difficulty even swallowing an orange. That's kind of the narrow cavity we're talking about here when we talk about a whale's throat, much less a man. However, those who were making this argument failed to distinguish between a Greenland whale, which does have a very small throat, and a sperm whale, which has an enormous mouth and throat and stomach. An average sperm whale might have a mouth that is 20 feet long, 15 feet high, and nine feet wide. That's larger than most rooms in our houses, and surely large enough to engulf a single man. So what about this idea, if if the mouth was large enough and the throat was large enough to engulf a single man, what about this idea that, okay, now the man finds himself in the belly of a fish, is it possible for a man to reside in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights and still live? Well, I should say it's not something you would want to do. Uh, It would be very uncomfortable for sure, but it does seem as though it would be possible. There's air in the belly of the fish. The air is necessary for the whale to stay afloat. Temperature-wise, it would be very hot, just over 100 degrees, but bearable. 
And the gastric juices, which are oftentimes mentioned, would irritate the skin, but would not be powerful enough to digest a living human being. In fact, there have been some historical records in modern times of people being swallowed alive by a whale and living to tell the story. Now, we could say a lot more about this. We could spend our whole time this morning talking about whether or not this you know, happened or not and so forth, and whether it's possible scientifically, biologically. But many would point to these facts, these examples that I've just provided you with, as evidence that the account of Jonah being swallowed by a whale is, strictly speaking, not a miracle. Because given the normal rules of nature, it is, in fact, biologically and scientifically possible. I think we have to say there is still some miraculous element to this, But strictly speaking, although extremely unusual, it is scientifically possible. This raises another question. How would the author have us to read this account? So how would the person who penned this account, are, are they wanting us to read this as an historical fact or historical event, or do they intend for us to read this more as a parable or an allegory? Well, we should note that the Bible does, in fact, include parables and allegories. Actually, back in January, we were in John 15, and we walked through John 15 for the month of January. And in John 15, Jesus uses an extended allegory to make a point. In John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is not a literal vine, And he did not intend for us to understand that we are literal branches. He's using an analogy. He uses parables oftentimes in his teaching to make certain points. And so we know what an allegory is. We know what a parable is. We know how to identify them. But the author here in the book of Jonah gives us no reason to believe that he intends for us to read this as an allegory or a parable. Instead, he seems to clearly record the occurrence as an historical event. In addition to that, it is also worth noting that Jesus understood these events recorded in Jonah to be historical fact. Jesus is speaking in Matthew chapter 12, verses 39 to 42. I'll read it for you. We're going to actually come back to this passage later on this morning. But in this passage, Jesus says, "...an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign." But no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Now what's really interesting about this is that when Jesus, we could say a lot about these verses, but I just want to make this point briefly. When Jesus refers to Jonah being in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights, he also makes reference to the queen of Sheba coming to visit King Solomon. These were clearly two historical figures, and this account is recorded in the Old Testament where King Solomon, because of his great wisdom and his great glory, the Queen of Sheba made a trek to visit King Solomon to see all of his wisdom and all of his glory. 
And so here Jesus compares the record of of Jonah spending three days and three nights in the belly of the fish with the historical events of the queen of Sheba visiting the queen or the uh, king Solomon. Therefore, we conclude that Jesus believed the account of Jonah being swallowed by the whale was just as much an historical event as the queen of Sheba visiting King Solomon. My friends, we could go on and on giving all kinds of reasons why I think it is um, worth considering this account to be an historical event that literally happened. But it's worth saying, I think, just in summary, that there's adequate reason, adequate um, justification for taking what is recorded here in Jonah as an historical record, an accurate record of the events as they happened. It's through this event as well that God is intending to communicate something to us. It's through this event that Jonah, in fact, experiences God's salvation. Now, last week we saw that Jonah was on the run and God was pursuing him, but this week we will see that Jonah experiences God's salvation, and it's through this event of the whale. Now, in the experience of Jonah's salvation, there are three stages, and this is what I want us to spend the rest of our time this morning looking at, the three stages of Jonah's experience. First, drowning in despair. Secondly, crying out to the Lord. And third, rejoicing in salvation. So those are our three points this morning. Drowning in despair, crying out to the Lord, rejoicing in salvation. All right, let's look first of all at drowning in despair. Now this is a theme actually that we see running through chapters 1 and 2. This idea that the longer Jonah rebels against God's will for his life, the further Jonah sinks down into despair. The theme begins actually back in chapter 1. If you look at chapter 1 verse 3, we read, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Here it is. He went down to Joppa. Chapter 1, verse 5, But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. And then if you skip further along into chapter 1, verse 17, and then chapter 2, verse 1, we see that Jonah now finds himself, he's even sunk lower, he finds himself in the belly of the fish. And then Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is filled with all of this imagery of drowning and despair. In chapter 2, verse 2, he says that he is in the belly of Sheol. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, You cast me into the deep. The flood surrounds me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, The waters closed in over me. In chapter 2, verse 6, he says, I went, and here's the word again, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And he acknowledges in that verse that he is in the pit. So you see all this imagery of, as, as Jonah is running from God, as Jonah is rebelling uh, against God, the more he rebels and the more he runs, the further he goes down and down and down and down into despair. Jonah's experience here is really a vivid description of where sin will lead all of us. You know, sin always promises a quick ascent to more joy and more pleasure and more freedom and more glory and more fame. And when we buy into sin's promises, 
We start living and doing things our way. Apart from God, apart from His Word, apart from His promises, apart from His people, we become convinced that our way is the way up. That if we just take our path, if we just go our way, then surely that is the way to greater joy, to greater life, to greater success, to greater fulfillment. And we know a better way than God does. And here's the thing. In the short term, sin delivers. Oftentimes it does. I mean, Jonah experienced that somewhat in his own life, right? Jonah experienced the momentary pleasure and freedom of not having to travel to Nineveh to preach the gospel to those pagans whom he hated. But sin never ultimately makes good on its promises. The temporary high that sin brings always, and we see this in the book of Jonah, always is followed by a crash down, down, down into despair. And it's true of all of us. It's true for pastors and preachers and missionaries like Jonah. It's true for pagans like the sailors that we saw on the boat in chapter 1 or the pagans in Nineveh that are under the coming judgment of God that Jonah will eventually go to. It's true of all of us. Sin leads us down into despair. But there's also good news here as well. As we will see in our passage, sometimes God must take us down before He lifts us up. Sometimes He must bring us to the brink of despair before we can experience true hope and life in Him. And God brought Jonah to this point so that he would finally cry out for salvation and, ex- and, and experience God's redemptive love and mercy. I wonder if there are some here this morning who are at this point. I wonder if there might be some here this morning that you recognize that you have been doing things your way long enough and it has caused enough disillusionment, enough disappointment, enough hurt, enough pain, enough despair that you are finally ready to cry out for salvation. God brings us down in order that in His mercy He might lift us up. Now when we see someone in a condition like this, whether it's because of their pride or rebellion or disobedience, they've made a complete mess of things. We are often tempted to dismiss them, to give up on them. I mean, if you're reading Jonah chapter 1 and you just stop right there, you might think, yeah, we're done with that guy. I mean, he's, he's just... He's foolishly rejecting God. He says he's a prophet, but he's not living like a prophet at all. And we might be tempted to dismiss folks like this. But God was not done with Jonah. He did not forsake him. He continued to pursue him. And he took him down so that in his mercy he might lift him up. My friends, if you find yourself in that condition this morning, I hope that you will as we walk through our passage this morning, that you will be inclined to cry out to God for deliverance just as Jonah does. That leads us to our second point. The first stage in Jonah's experience is he's drowning in despair. The second point is that he cries out to the Lord. Look there in chapter 2, verse 1. We read these words. 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And so here we see that Jonah is brought to the point where he actually prays. He calls out and he calls out in his distress. And one of the things that's important for us to see here is that when Jonah calls out, when Jonah prays out of his distress, Jonah is praying out of the stress that he himself has caused. Now that's worth noting. It's not as though Jonah, in obedience, was on his way to Nineveh to preach the gospel in hopes that these pagans would come to repentance and experience God's love and mercy and forgiveness. And of no fault of his own, he fell upon a pack of wolves. And in service to the Lord, he experiences this danger in his life. And now he calls out to God for salvation and God delivers him. That's not what happens at all, right? Instead, Jonah is running. Jonah is fleeing in the opposite direction of God's call. And as a result of his disobedience, he experiences this complete mess. He finds himself in the pit of distress as a result of his own stubborn foolishness. Have you ever found yourself in a mess and it's nobody's fault but your own? I have. And at this point, Jonah knows that it's his fault, and Jonah knows that God has brought these difficult circumstances into his life because of his disobedience. You see it there in verse 3. Jonah says, You, speaking to the Lord, you cast me into the deep and into the heart of the seas. Now in these moments, we may be tempted to think, I can't pray to God now. There's no way I could go to God with my sin and with the distress that I'm experiencing. I brought it upon myself. Obviously, God is displeased with me. And if God's put me in this place, and if God's put me in this station, surely He's not going to deliver me from it. But listen, my friends, of all the things Jonah gets wrong, and he gets a lot of things wrong in this book, this is the one thing Jonah gets right. He knows that when he finds himself in the deepest, darkest distress, the only one he can call out to, the only hope for him is the Lord, and he cries out. Not because he's been so obedient, now God will deliver him, but he's been disobedient, and in his disobedience he knows the only hope that he has, where else is he going to turn, is the Lord. And here's the great thing about it, and the Lord wants us to call out to him when we find ourselves in that place. And Jonah calls out. Jonah yells, God, I've made a mess of things. I need you. Save me. Notice a couple of things about Jonah's cry. First of all, Jonah's cry we see in chapter 2 is both informed and it is personal. I want to explain what I mean by that. It's informed and it's personal. It's interesting as you look at verses 1 through 9 of Jonah chapter 2, and and, and that's the record of his prayer. It, It reads much like one of the Psalms. Now, some of you may not know what the Psalms are. The Psalms are a collection of 150 essentially songs or prayers 
that are recorded in the Old Testament, you'll find them right in the middle of your Bible. And God-fearing Israelites would have read the Psalms and memorized the Psalms, and they would have used the Psalms in corporate worship like we do now, even as we were singing songs today. Uh, One of the Psalms flashed up on the screen, if you remember that, when we were reading about God as our rock and our salvation. One of the Psalms flashed up on the screen. So these Psalms were a natural part of their lives and their worship. And it's apparent from this prayer here, Jonah issues forth from the belly of the fish that his prayer is informed by and shaped by the Psalms. In fact, some of the lines in Jonah's prayer come verbatim from the Psalms. Okay? So his prayers are informed and shaped by the Psalms. But then in addition to that, Jonah's prayer is personal. He takes the words of the Psalms and he applies them to his own particular circumstance and situation. This is why there's all this talk in the prayer about being in the depths, being in the pit. I love the reference there where it's like he's got seaweed around his head, right? These are the particularities of his own distress and circumstance that he is bringing to bear on the situation, including in his prayers, he lifts it up to God. Now, now here's the reason why this is important. Do you notice that the Psalms here give Jonah a vocabulary to express his personal anguish and distress to God? The the Psalms give Jonah words to express the repentance that he wants to issue forth to God. Have you ever wanted to pray, but you don't know what to say? Have you ever been in that situation? The Scriptures give us a vocabulary to speak to God. Have you been so overwhelmed by your circumstances, by the sorrow that you're experiencing, that you don't know how to speak it, you don't know how to say it? Have you been so longing to return to God and turn from your sins and and confess your, your sins to Him, but you don't have words for it? Go to Psalm 51. Pray with David. Purify my heart, O God. Cleanse me. Give me a clean heart before you, O God. May I walk in all your ways. Pray that with David. The Psalms are given to us to give voice to the experience that God is working in our own hearts and lives. And so Jonah's prayer is both informed and it is personal. Now I'm going to make a plug for home groups right here because home groups started this last week. And uh, the book that we're reading in home groups, if you haven't signed up for a home group yet, you can do so. The book we're reading is entitled Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson. This is what the whole book does. just walks you through chapter by chapter the prayers of Paul and teaches us how is it, based on how Paul prayed, how is it then that we can pray? How should we pray in light of how Scripture teaches us to pray in seeing Paul's prayers recorded there? So that's the first thing about Jonah's cry. It's informed by the Word of God, and personal to his own situation. Secondly, regarding Jonah's cry, it is not only to the Lord, but it's also for the Lord. It's not only to the Lord, but it's also for the Lord. So in order to understand what we're saying here, you have to realize that Jonah's rebellion in this book is presented to us as very personal. Personal against God. So that in rejecting God's call and plan for Jonah's life, Jonah is in the end rejecting God. So we see this in chapter 1 verse 3. 
It says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And then we see it repeated in chapter 1, verse 10, For the men knew that he was fleeing, here it is, from the presence of the Lord. So understand, this is not just about location. You know, this isn't just about the fact that, well, God and Jonah, you know, they were talking and God really wanted Jonah to kind of go over here, but Jonah kind of really wanted to go over here. And so they just ended up disagreeing over where he should end up. That's not what this is about, right? No, when God told Jonah to go to Nineveh and he went to Tarshish, Jonah was not only rejecting Nineveh, Jonah was not only just rejecting this plan that God had laid out before him, Jonah was rejecting God. It's personal. He's running from the presence of the Lord. Why? Because in that moment, he's not trusting God. He's not loving God. He's not obeying God. He's rejecting God. He's running from the Lord. If you look at chapter 2, verse 4, as he issues forth this prayer, it seems that Jonah has finally gotten what he wanted. He's been running from the presence of the Lord, running from the presence of the Lord, running from the presence of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 4, Jonah says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. And here's a warning for all of us, for those of us who might be running and fleeing from God. You can run and you can flee for so long that in the end you might actually get what you wish for. You might actually get what you desire. And Jonah, having received his wish, having recognized that he has been driven away from the sight of the Lord, Jonah can no longer bear the distance. And notice Jonah's prayer. Notice what he wants in chapter 2, verse 4. He says, I am driven away from your sight, but then notice what he prays. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. He said it again in chapter 2, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Now, it's really significant, given that Jonah's been running from the presence of the Lord, that he now longs for the temple. Because what is the temple? It's the presence of God. In the Old Testament, the temple is the place where God said, if you want to meet with me, then come to the temple. I will especially and uniquely dwell with you as my people at the temple. Come to the temple and worship me. Come to the temple and I will be present with you. And so Jonah is crying out as he's been running from the presence of the Lord, running from the presence of the Lord, now realizes that he has distanced himself from God. What is it? that Jonah wants above all things. He wants to return to the temple of God because he wants to be in the presence of God. He's tired of running. He's tired of the distance. He's weary. He wants to be with God again. Understand this presence as well is far more than just a subjective feeling. To be in the presence of God means a right relationship with God through a heart of confession, through a heart of faith, and through a heart of obedience. And I wonder, my friends, if you find yourself in the pit of distress, if you find yourself in the pit of despair, what is it in that moment that you want? Do you want just to get out, or do you want God? 
Jonah wants God. Surely Jonah had been influenced in that moment by another psalm. Psalm 1611. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jonah thought running from God would give him pleasure. Fleeing from God and from his will would give him pleasure. But now Jonah is persuaded and absolutely convinced that pleasure is in the presence of God. And he wants God. And that's what he cries out for. And Jonah is convinced now that if being in the presence of God means going to Nineveh, if being in the presence of God, if, if walking with God and being in right relationship with God through faith and obedience means going to Nineveh, then I'm going to Nineveh because I want God. Third, so the first stage is he's drowning in despair. The second stage is he's crying out to the Lord. Third, he's rejoicing in salvation. Rejoicing in salvation. Now, as we mentioned earlier, there's this repeated refrain in Jonah of Jonah descending down, down, down into the depths as he is running from the Lord. But notice there in chapter 2, verse 6, we read, Jonah says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. So here's, here's the contrast, right? He's down, but the Lord's brought him up. So when Jonah hit rock bottom and he cried out to the Lord, the Lord lifted him up. Or we might say, out. Right? If you look at chapter 2, verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. So, this is the record of Jonah's salvation and his deliverance. One of the things that's noteworthy here is the parallel between Jonah's experience of deliverance from the fish and the conversion of the pagan sailors back in chapter 1. So I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but last week we saw that the pagan sailors came to a point in which they acknowledged the God of the Bible as the true God, and they worshipped Him. And so if we look at that experience, and then we look at the salvation that Jonah experiences in chapter 2, there are striking parallels. So notice back in chapter 1, verse 16, in describing the pagans' conversion, the author records, "...then the men feared the Lord exceedingly." And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, notice Jonah's experience in chapter 2, verse 9. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Do you see the similarities? On both occasions, there's sacrifice. So, and listen, if you want to know how to experience God's salvation, this is it. There's sacrifice, because we all need sacrifice, right? We need a sacrifice for our sins. So look to the sacrifice that God has offered in Jesus Christ. There's sacrifice and there's vows. There's a commitment of one's life to the Lord. That happened for the pagan sailors, and now we see it happens for Jonah in his salvation experience. So we could say in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, Jonah is converted. Now, I know that Jonah was a believer before this because he was a prophet of God. I know that conversion is a one-time experience. Either you are converted or you're not converted. Either you are a Christian or you're not a Christian. You don't go in and out of conversion. I get that. But in another sense, we need to be converted over and over and over and over again. 
And what I mean by that is we need fresh experiences of the reality of God's grace and mercy in our lives daily, even moment by moment. And that's what Jonah experiences here. It's interesting then that Jonah concludes his prayer with this great pronouncement, salvation belongs to the Lord. And it's at this point, verse 10, that Jonah's vomited on the land. It's as though God is saying, okay, Jonah's got it. Everything has been leading to this point. He's finally got it. You can put him on the beach over there. I'll take care of him. Right? So everything that's happened up to this point has been leading to this, for Jonah to come to the realization that salvation belongs to the Lord. Now Jonah is ready for mission. Now he's ready to be set free, and he will be used in the hands of God. We see here to experience God's salvation should always lead it to worship. Salvation belongs to the Lord should be our profession and mission, as then we are ready to take that salvation to others. So these are the three stages. Drowning in despair, crying out to the Lord, rejoicing in salvation. Jonah's experience of salvation is intended here to be a source of hope and encouragement for all of us. As God saved Jonah, He will save us if we cry out to Him. But there is something more here as well, and this is where we'll conclude. Jonah also points us to a greater salvation that God would bring us in Jesus. I read it to us earlier in the mo- earlier this morning, but um, let me read it for us again in Matthew chapter 12, just two verses now, uh, verse 39 and 40. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, do you see the parallels here? Jonah and the events that took place in his life were intended to point us to a greater salvation. We could say it this way, Jesus is the greater Jonah who offers us a greater salvation. Jesus is in fact making the argument here that if the Ninevites repented because they saw the experience of Jonah being delivered from the whale, how much more responsible are you to repent and believe in God's salvation because Jesus not only died but was raised, even a greater feat, even a greater salvation. You see, Jonah nearly died in the belly of the fish because of his own sin. But Jesus actually did die and was laid in the belly of the earth, not for his sins because he was blameless, but for our sins. And Jonah emerged alive from the belly of the fish rejoicing in God's salvation, but Jesus would emerge alive from the belly of Sheol, from death itself, alive, offering us eternal life. Jesus says, how much more responsible are you then who have been offered a greater salvation than the deliverance and salvation of Jonah? And my friends, here's the good news. No matter who you are, no matter where you've been, no matter how big a mess you've made of your life, God can and will save you if you cry out to Him 
for salvation. Cry out to Jesus. Confess your sins. Trust in Him for salvation and deliverance for his, in His death and in His resurrection and He will save you. And then may your whole life be a testimony to this song, Salvation Belongs to the Lord. And may you proclaim that to all nations. Let's pray. Father, I trust that there are some here this morning who need to cry out for salvation. Lord, perhaps they are drowning in despair, in the despair that has been caused by their own sin and waywardness. And Lord, I pray that even in this moment they might cry out and that you might show mercy. Lord, this word was given to us for a reason. It's not just intellectual curiosity, but it was given to us because you are a God who saves and you delight to save. And so, Lord, I pray that you would save now. I pray that you would remove all obstacles, all hindrances. I pray that any lies that might be keeping people back from experiencing all that you have for them, that they would reject those lies that they would remove all obstacles, all hindrances, nothing would hold them back, but that they would cry out for salvation. Lord, do this work for your glory. Help each of us, Lord, to experience the reality of your grace and mercy in our lives moment by moment as we look to you in faith, confessing our sins and trusting in Christ. And Lord, we pray that as we experience your grace, that then truly we would be prepared and set free to proclaim this grace to others. Make us such a people for your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.